in his teaching on freedom, the Buddha over and over emphasized that freedom was not freedom to do things, but freedom from ways that we get caught. And over and over again, he said that freedom, Nibbana is freedom from greed, freedom from aversion, and freedom from delusion. And so our practice is not, I mean, it would be nice if we could just simply hear that and go, oh, greed, aversion, and delusion, that's not helpful. Let's stop. That doesn't work that way, as I think you all are very aware. Our work is to understand, the Buddha said, we need to understand our suffering. We need to understand the, cause, the, the things that cause suffering. Let go of the causes of suffering. And we, we move in this direction by studying how our minds get caught in greed, how our minds get caught in aversion, how our minds get caught in delusion. We've been talking about working with these over the last couple of weeks. And this morning, Greg brought out the teaching on mindfulness of mind, which emphasizes these three, recognizing the presence and absence of greed, aversion, and delusion as a very big part of this aspect of studying mindfulness of mind. We get familiar with what is the presence of greed like? What is the absence of greed like? What is the presence of of aversion like? What's the absence of aversion like? And what are the presence and absence of delusion? It's it's, uh, relatively, I'll say relatively, easy to begin to recognize greed and aversion as has been commented in the hall, that they're at least recognizable, if not easy to be with. We can begin to recognize when we're caught by those energies and begin to learn some tools to allow us to open to them, tools that allow us to work with them. But delusion by its very nature, is much harder to even recognize. So how how do we do this? How do we begin to know the presence of delusion? As it is recommending in the Satipatthana Sutta, one knows delusion when it is present. One knows delusion when it is absent, when delusion is not present. How do we recognize delusion being present? That's the subject, that's the subject for the talk.
Delusion is more fundamental in a way, we can say more fundamental than greed or aversion in that greed and aversion arise independence on delusion. If delusion didn't exist, if we, were not, if we didn't have delusion in our minds, greed and aversion would not be arising. And so greed and aversion always exist simultaneously with delusion. Some fundamental misunderstanding in the mind that leads it to want, leads it to want to get rid of. There are different forms of delusion that I'd like to explore with you tonight. And hopefully my, 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 um, my aim, I guess, of the talk is mostly to provide some information and some examples and some stories that I hope will help you begin to be able to recognize delusion in your experience. To begin to, to follow that instruction. Delusion is present. Delusion is affecting the mind right now. That simple instruction of the Satipatthana, not so simple to implement, not so simple to recognize. But the, my hope is that with this talk that, that there will be some understanding that allows you to begin to recognize this. Delusion is affecting the mind. So different forms of delusion two basic broad categories of delusion. One, simply the not connecting form, the form of delusion that is checked out, lacking awareness. This is maybe the more obvious form of delusion. The second more general form of delusion is where we're aware, we're present, it's not that we're checked out, but we are experiencing things through some kind of filter, some kind of perspective, agenda, view, perspective, that kind of alters how we take in information. And so an example, to, just to begin with, an example of this is like greed and aversion, while they already have delusion at their root, they also can create a form of delusion on top of themselves. And so, for instance, with aversion, if we are caught in the field of aversion, some of you may have recognized this or noticed this, I certainly did at one point, I, I knew that I was in this um, aversive state. And everywhere my eyes landed, I saw things to hate. I was doing walking meditation. I was downstairs in the walking room downstairs, and I no- was noticing that I was in this aversive state. And as I turned around and looked at the other end of the room, my eyes landed on those sho- some shoes, 
that somebody had left at the end of the walkway. And my mind just exploded with aversion. Who left those shoes there? This is a form of, uh, it's the, the aversion, but with everything being colored by that lens, it's like we only take in things from that perspective. That's the delusion. Another, another example of this is um, having this aversive tendency in my mind. At one point in an early exploration of choiceless awareness, my teacher asked me just to notice whatever my attention landed on. And I did that for a few minutes. And as I finished that, I, I, I stopped and I, I said, well, you said to do choiceless awareness, but this couldn't possibly have been choiceless because everything my attention landed on was unpleasant. And again, that speaks to a filter, a kind of a, a view that the mind is seeing through, pulling out of the environment, pulling out of experience, things that are in line with that view or that filter. And so this is, a, this is the second form of delusion. It's, a, it's not a form of delusion that prevents us from being present, but it, in, in our being present, we are not taking in information in a unbiased way. And so there's, there's three areas I want to talk about tonight. One is this um, area of the uncertainty, the uh, lack of connection to experience, uh, that, that part of delusion, the, the kind of more cloudy uh, unconnected, disconnected state. And then within the area of the filters of taking in information in an, in an unbi- in a biased way, there's two ways I want to explore that. One are views or perspectives that we we grow up with, let's say. They're views or perspectives that are created because of our culture, because of our family, because of the way that we interacted with people, basically because of our conditioning. Because of the way that as a human being we have navigated this world and the various views and perspectives and agendas that we have lived with. Those views and perspectives and agendas influence how we see the world and create a skew, create a bias on how we take in information. The third category that I want to explore is what I will call more human delusion. Uh, A kind of a fundamental distortion of our experience that we share uniformly with all human beings. So it's, it's, it's very deeply ingrained in our structure as human beings. Not so particularly conditioned by our families, but just in our very uh, makeup as human beings. These misperceptions are part of the structure, but do not have to be 
they're part of the structure of how we interact with the world because they're not seen as distortions. And so this first one of, of not connecting with experience, this one we've actually talked about quite a bit. This form of delusion where we're in a fog or lost in a story, in a thought world, a thought bubble, basically living in some world that we're not really connecting with what's actually happening here and now. These thought bubbles, these thought worlds we, we, we inhabit sometimes. I mean, when we get lost in thought, it's quite amazing sometimes when we come out of those thoughts to recognize just how much we might have believed the world that was created by those thoughts. At one point, I had, I had broken up with a partner several years before this, this story that I'm going to tell, uh, and had pretty much gotten over any of the anger or hurt. Actually, it, it, was, it, was all, I was, it was all pretty much gone at that point. And so when thoughts about my ex-partner would come up, there wasn't any particular emotional charge at all anymore. And so one day I was walking down the street and my mind, I woke up into this thought world. I had been lost in this thought world for about five minutes in which I was back in relationship with that partner. And as I came out of that thought bubble, awareness immediately arose. And in that moment of awareness arising, I could see that well, what, was no, what was being experienced in that moment was confusion because the mind had so thoroughly believed the story of it being that I was back in relationship with that partner. And then when I came out of that, it's like, what? What? Where am I? What's going on? It was, it was really kind of like a waking dream. I think this kind of thing happens to us a lot. But often we have an emotional charge around those thoughts. And so what's obvious to us when we come out of some of those thought worlds is an emotional reactivity. In this case, it was really clear to me that the mind had just been caught in this world and believing it because there wasn't the emotional charge. But there was this recognition that the mind had thoroughly been believing something that was just a construction, had not been, had not been part of my life for years. So this is this kind of disconnection from reality and taking birth into our thought worlds. This is a form of delusion. We can start to get familiar with the, uh, the kind of disconnection from experience. In the moment that we return back into mindfulness, in that moment when we remember there can kind of be, if you're, if you're curious about that moment, if you're curious about the re-arising of mindfulness itself in that moment, and not um, thinking, oh, I need to do something, I need to come back to my breath, or do metta, but, but rather just, here I am, I'm aware in this moment. What is awareness like in this moment? In that moment, as we come back 
into mindfulness, there can be a lingering memory of what it was like to be lost moments before. And so we get a flavor of what that disconnected kind of state is like in the moment that we come back into mindfulness. We can also begin to get curious about those states that are habitually disconnected as we've been talking about in in the hindrances and sleepiness and dullness and fogginess and confusion. All of these states are We kind of habitually have a a disconnection with experience with many of these kinds of states. But it's not, it doesn't have to be inherently non-mindful or unaware in those states. And so again, beginning to explore, be curious about states that we think would be inherently non-mindful. I mentioned the spacing out story the other day. That, that it is possible to be mindful when the mind disconnects from what we think we should be paying attention to, but it, we, can, we can stay present for the spacing out itself. And so we can begin to get familiar with these kind of foggy, hazy, confused states of mind. And in the very becoming mindful in those, we are no longer in that state of delusion where we are disconnected. So habitually with spacing out, we're disconnected from experience, not even aware of what's going on. There's the possibility of becoming aware of the spacing out. And so we are in that moment, aware of what's happening in the present moment connected with the experience of spacing out. It's a very different relationship to that experience. I think I said the other day that if there's any state of mind that you believe or think, it's not possible to be mindful while X is happening. Don't believe that thought. Rather, perhaps try exploring how might it be possible to be mindful while X is happening. When I've explored it from that perspective, there's, it can take some time, it can sometimes take some time to find the way to connect, to have the mindfulness kind of infuse that state. But the the curiosity about how might it be possible is very supportive. You may not figure it out right away, but keep holding that question. Keep holding that question. In the terrain of the, this one of the second kinds of delusion of where we're not disconnected, but we are seeing things in a biased way based on our personal conditioning or cultural conditioning. So how this is delusion 
is that we, be, we are, it's like we're immersed in a view. We're immersed in a perspective. And being so thoroughly immersed in a perspective, we are unaware that we're even holding a view or a perspective. It's simply the way things are. And because we don't even have a clue that we are holding a perspective, the way we're taking in information, we are assuming it's an accurate representation of reality. These views in place, these views, one of their functions seems to be to pull things out of the environment, have us find things that corroborate those views, and to ignore things, conveniently, ignore things that do not line up with those views, do not match those views. And so it's very hard when we're immersed in views like that to see evidence or information that would counter those views. So I'm going to give you some examples of these kind, this kind of delusion. There's so many ways. I, 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 I may not even get to all of these examples. I just I came up with so many different kinds of examples. But I want to give you a flavor of different ways that this kind of delusion works. One is just views that we have about ourselves. What we can do, who we are, what we can accomplish. I'm good at this kind of thing, I'm not good at that kind of thing. We have these views of who we are and from that perspective, it's almost like we're limiting ourselves, we're boxing ourselves in. We do this to ourselves and we do it to other people. There's one uh, friend of mine who, um, for a while, uh, I was noticing that she was late a lot. And um, I began creating, creating this view about her that she was always late. And uh, I noticed the times that she was late. And then I got, began to get curious. Am I just highlighting those? You know, am I just highlighting the ones where she's late? And then I discovered, actually, you know, it was maybe 50-50. You know, she was sometimes late, she sometimes wasn't late. So, you know, we, we create views of ourselves, of other people, and then we, we, we see our world in ways that support that. One of my um, uh, colleagues... Gil Fronstall tells a story that when he was young, um, in well, maybe 10 or so, he was in an art class and he was drawing and his art teacher came up to him and looked over his shoulder and said, without a particular charge in her voice, you have no artistic ability. And he kind of just, hmm, okay, well, I don't have any artistic ability. And, you know, just went through life thinking that. And then at some point in college, uh, somebody convinced him to take an art class. And he's like, I don't have artistic ability. But somebody convinced him to take an art class anyway. And it turned out he did have artistic ability. So we can go through our lives with beliefs 
and limit ourselves based on those beliefs. We notice when other people do this to us. Have you noticed sometimes when somebody you know, says, yo, you're like this, and it's kind of, you bristle, it's like, well, yeah, I know I'm sometimes like that, but that's not who I am. We notice when other people do that to us, but we equally do it to ourselves. Create these identities and limitations around who we are. Our culture offers us many views. Our culture, one in the American culture, a very predominant view. I certainly grew up with this belief that America, this country, (laughs) is the land of opportunity. And if you work hard enough in this country, you can get what you want. So I grew up with that belief. And for me, it happened to be fairly true. But the conditions of my life were really smooth. My family had enough money to send me to to live in a place where I had really good schools. I felt safe at school. Uh, They had the money to send me to a good college. And so there's a, a saying sometimes in, in uh, uh, I'll finish, I'll finish that, I'll come back to that saying in a minute. <laughs> my mind jumped ahead. So in my case, yes, I worked hard and I accomplished many things and I felt good about what I accomplished, but that perspective that America is the land of opportunity and if you work hard enough, you can get what you want or, or achieve your dreams, achieve your goals, is based on a very you know, limited perspective. That doesn't take into account for certain segments of the population, people living in poverty, in Uh, in slums, in great, um, in areas that are not safe, drug, drug, um, drug dealing neighborhoods where there's a lot of uh, gang warfare, doesn't take into account that working hard enough Working hard, working hard is that that we that we have to overcome. That, that some people have to overcome so much, and that the patterns of culture keep one really embedded in and stuck 
in various ways. And so this kind of belief, this view, America's the land of opportunity. Anyone who works hard enough can achieve their goals. This, this is kind of the, the root of what we could call, you know, white privilege. And I have to acknowledge that as a child and even, even you know, more, more recently that some part of my mind still has this very deeply held, you know, it's, it's so deeply conditioned, these beliefs, that my mind still has this, you know, little subtle thought if I see somebody who's, who's you know, um, on the street that, you know, they're just not trying hard enough. You know, that, so these views are, I, I know, I know that this is delusion. I know it's delusion. And so now at least I can start to see it. See these little thoughts. You know, see, this is a view. It's a perspective. It's, it's, it's not based in everybody's reality. Some of our um, views, or even this kind of delusion can happen um, I'm going to go back to that saying. I just remembered I forgot to say the saying. Um, there's a saying in um, the the circles that are exploring this terrain of white privilege and um, understanding, wow, you know, the... Uh, the um, the perspectives that we hold are not, the perspectives we hold as a white culture are not universally applicable. This is really the, the perspective of one small segment of the population, of one segment of the population. So the saying is, some people are born on third base thinking they hit a triple. I was born on third base. I had a really fortunate childhood where my parents had funds to clothe me and feed me and they weren't abusive to me. I was born on third base. And I know now that I didn't hit a triple. So this kind of delusion also, these filters, these views that have us taking in information in a biased way can also be really like amazingly simple. Just a simple agenda in our minds can create a filter that has us select certain information out of the environment and not other information. This is actually a useful function of the way our minds work. There's a name for it in psychology. It's called selective attention. It has a purpose. When we have a particular goal, it helps us to 
find information that relates to that goal and ignore information that doesn't relate to that goal. So it's a useful kind of feature of our minds. But what happens with that feature is that we do not recognize that this selective attention is operating and we think that our mind and our um, sense apparatus is recording reality incomplete. It's like we have cameras for eyes and microphones or receivers for ears and we're taking it all in and it's all available. But that's not the way our minds work. Our minds selectively pull certain things out of the field of sight and don't see other things. Selectively pull things out of the field of sound and don't hear other things. It's mind-blowing, but it's true. There's a very famous study, I think maybe, maybe some number of you have heard it, but I'm going to tell it again because I think there may be some of you in here who have not heard this story about selective attention So there was a research study that was doing this, uh, an exploration of this selective attention. And, you know, just how, just how selective, you know, is it? You know, how much would you miss? So there was a a task people were given and they were told that that they had a task to do when they watched a video. And the video was of people throwing a basketball to each other. And they were told to count the number of times that the basketball passed between the people in the white shirt. And they watched the video, they counted the number of times the basketball passed, and at the end they, they said, okay, how many times did the basketball pass between the people in the white shirt? And largely people could do that task. It took some degree of focus. You had to follow, you know, count and follow. So there's, a, a, you know, the, the agenda was very selective to follow that basketball. A few people after the uh, study would say something like, was there a gorilla that went through the video? (laughs) And uh, indeed, there had been a guy in a gorilla suit that walked through the middle of the people, kind of stood there for a minute, you know, dancing around, and then walked out. It was like, I've seen this video. It is so obvious. If you are looking for the gorilla, you are not going to miss the gorilla. Or even if you're not looking for the gorilla, but you're not doing anything else, if you're just watching the video, you're not going to miss the gorilla. Most people did not see the gorilla. That's selective attention. Now, in and of itself, that is not necessarily delusion. It's, It's a form of you know, not taking in information. But to me, the real delusion came is that there's kind of almost a footnote at the end of the study that said, some of the people, when shown the video again, to show them, yes, there was a gorilla in the video, said, that cannot be the same video. I would have seen the gorilla. That is delusion. That is the believing of our experience as the truth of reality. This kind of thing happens a lot. 
in so many ways with little small agendas. We walk into the dining room getting ready to get some tea, a a little agenda of getting tea. We may miss something entirely. So, again, it's not that we're trying to not have selective attention happen, but to, I would say, begin to have some respect for the fact that we are probably not taking in everything. And that if someone proposes an alternative view of reality, rather than saying, nope, doesn't match my experience, you might think, huh, that's interesting. Somebody else thinks it's different. Maybe I could check that out. Another very um, common way of um, having a view created is when a view gets created based on incomplete information. This is, um, the classic story about this is the elephant and the blind people, where blind people are shown touched, you know, given to touch various parts of the elephant, and some people touch one part, you know, the foot or the tail or the ear or the trunk, and then they're asked to compare notes about what an elephant is like. They have very different perspectives on what an elephant is like. And this, this story is actually a teaching story at the time of the Buddha. And the ending of this story, after um, the blind people have touched the various parts of the elephant, and then they're comparing. It's like, well, an elephant is like this. It's like a trunk. No, an elephant's like a broom. No, an elephant's like a, a hose. No, an elephant's like a storeroom. That they come to blows saying, an elephant is like this, it's not like this, I'm right, you're wrong. Now again, it's not, it's not, it's natural that we would create a view based on our limited experience. But to hold to that and say, this is reality. That's, that's, that's a very powerful form of delusion that works in our minds is not being aware that we're holding to views like that. Views are useful. They help us to navigate the world. But often our views are below the level of our conscious awareness. We see somebody do something and we react. And, you know, sometimes in, in, our, in our meditation here, when we're on retreat, we, we can recognize, wow, I see that person do that thing and I'm reacting and I see it's completely out of line. You know, it's like all they're doing is like getting a cup of tea and moving a little slowly. I mean, what is the reaction to? Often... What's going on there when, you know, is, is, is that there's some kind of belief operating. Something that we believe that, is, that we're not seeing. And so 
it can be useful or interesting at times to check in. If there's, if there's something happening, you know, if some kind of suffering is happening, some kind of greed or aversion or confusion is happening, and it's not clear to you what's going on, you could try checking in. Just, you just ask the question. It's not to try to figure it out, but just ask the question. What's being believed here? Is there a belief happening underneath this? And then not to try to figure it out, but sometimes just opening the door to, is there a belief here? we might see something that was previously kind of hidden for us. So check it out. Is there a belief? What might be being believed? Something about ourselves? Is it something about ourselves that we're believing? Something about the other person that we're believing? Something about the way the world works that we're believing? And as we begin to see the way we believe things, I mean, one, one belief I had about myself for quite a long time, was that I was a failure. I was, I was no good. This was a very subterranean belief uh, for a long time in my life. It wasn't until I started meditating, it wasn't actually until um, you know, some of the three-month courses here that I really began to see just how deep this, this pattern was, that I felt like I was a failure. And, you know, so that thought, you're a failure, at some point, it's like it became such a refrain in my mind. I think I mentioned my self-hatred retreat uh, a few weeks ago. You know, just the, the, the mind that kept going back over and over again. I can't, I'm no good. I'm a failure. I can't do this. I'm, I'm, I'm a failure. I'm a failure. I'm a failure. Over and over again, the mind thinking that. Sometimes when we see that, so this was a belief that was revealed I mean, it was better to have it revealed than to have it be subterranean. It wasn't very pleasant to have it revealed, I'll say that, but it it was at least seen. And when we can start to see these, I mean, what what, what we can sometimes see around these things is that it's a thought and it's being believed. I'm a failure is a thought, and the power that we give to that thought is the belief we invest in it. It's simply a thought. It's simply a a blip going through the mind. And yet when we are caught in the belief of it, and that caught in the belief of it is the form of delusion, when we're caught in the belief of a thought like that, sometimes we might try to tell ourselves, oh, I'm not a failure. But what that's trying to do is to like deny the belief that's happening. Something I found very helpful is to acknowledge, ah, I'm a failure, believing is happening. So when beliefs get revealed like this, we can acknowledge, oh, yeah, Believing is happening right now. Believing I'm a failure is happening right now. Acknowledging belief is a very powerful way to kind of crack the door open around delusion because it will take it, possibly take it, 
from being something we are taking to be true, I'm a failure, that's true, to I'm a failure is a belief that's arising in this moment. And again, there's a big difference between those two. And you're not trying to convince yourself not to believe it in that moment, but you're acknowledging. Believing is what's happening right now. I've suggested this to some people and the, 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 the space that this can create around even very powerful self-negativity can be quite helpful. The most fundamental kind of delusion the um, delusion we're all subject to as human beings, really the most insidious form of delusion, views that we share as a species, tend to share as a species, I should perhaps say, that cloud accurate perception of experience and have us take in information in a very biased way these views of taking what is impermanent to be permanent, taking what's unreliable to be a reliable source of lasting happiness, and taking what is not self to be self. These are views that we are so deeply enmeshed in. They're very difficult for us to free ourselves from. Sayadaw Utejaniya, in speaking of this form of delusion, says, delusion doesn't mask the object. It masks the true nature of the object. And so with this form of delusion, we can be aware. We can be mindful. And yet, the very way that we're mindful, the very way we're taking information in, has a spin to it. And this beginning to see through these three very fundamental, what we, call, what we could call distortions of our perception, these distortions of the way we take information in, beginning to see through these is a lot of what our practice helps us to do. Seeing what is impermanent as permanent This is so common. Things are happening so quickly. There's so much rapidity of change in our experience that actually some of our perceptual processes, again, work to slow down that change to some extent, to, to have us not overwhelmed by this massive amount of change. So we create concepts about experience. Like just for instance, my, you know, looking out at this room, I'm seeing a room full of people and zabutans and walls and lights. There's all kinds of concepts in this room. And largely, it's hard not to see experience through those concepts. 
because it happens so fast. I've had some experiences at times on retreat when the mind got very, very still and I'd look out at something and all I would see would be form and color. It would be just like a blur of pixels. Thank goodness we don't have to walk through the world that way, figuring out moment by moment, oh, that's a person, oh, that's a wall, don't walk into that. You know, we, we, we need our concepts. And yet our concepts, because we are unaware that we are kind of living our experience through concepts, we take our concepts to be reality. And our concepts sometimes have some kind of... It's actually the concepts that we take to be permanent. So concepts mask change. The rapidity of change itself can mask change. If you think about um, those, you know, movies aren't like this anymore, but you know, it used to be the films with different frames and the frame would go past the projector really quickly. Each frame is just a little still snapshot, but the rapidity of the motion creates the sense that there's some kind of continuity happening on the screen. So rapidity of change can create some kind of appearance of solidity. Another example of this is um, in the suttas it's, it's talked about, or maybe in the, in, the, in the commentaries, a fire stick. If you have a stick with a burning fire on the end and you spin that around in a circle, we used to do this with sparklers when I was a kid, spin it around in a circle really fast and you'd see a circle in the air. It's like the rapidity of the, the movement created the illusion that there was something hanging in the air. So our perceptual processes also mask the rapidity of change. So our mindfulness begins to unmask this, to reveal that what we take to be solid and stable is actually very rapidly changing. A way to explore this with anything I did this at one point on retreat. It's like anything that seemed to be solid, I would put my attention there. It's like, wow, that seems like it's solid. What is that solidity? Often it would actually start to break up as the attention actually met it and landed on it. You can sometimes see this with pain. With the idea of pain, the concept of pain, it feels like, a, like in the knee, you know, it feels like a big block of pain. But if you can get past the aversion to the pain, which is contributing to that kind of idea, this is pain, this is a problem, you can get past that and just kind of hang out with the actual sensations, you'll see it is so rapidly changing. There's almost nothing anywhere that you can say, well, that is the pain. It's just this little flash of sensation and then that little flash of sensation and then another little flash of sensation, just moving, dancing around. So investigate, what appears solid? What are you taking to be solid? What are you taking to be permanent? 
we can begin to go below the level of our concepts and actually meet the direct experience. Then we see what's unreliable as reliable, as satisfying. This is the story of greed, really. This is the delusion that underlies greed, that this thing will make me happy. This sense pleasure, this pleasant experience, this is what will make me happy. Greed is the kind of actual reaching out, but it's motivated by this belief that that will make me happy. Likewise with aversion. The belief that getting rid of that thing will make me happy is the underlying delusion of aversion. An exploration here is to begin to explore, again, not to just try to tell ourselves, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, um, I shouldn't want things, I shouldn't, how, how can I stop believing that when I get this thing, it will make me happy? We can't stop believing that. We have to begin to investigate, to explore, And one of the best, one of the the instructions the Buddha gave around this, he said, you know, yes, there's things that are going to make you happy. Pleasure, pleasure, sense pleasure will make you happy. But start looking at, like, how long does it last? Kind of pointing back to impermanence. Because the belief that something will make us happy is based on the view that it's going to last. And so as we begin to see these things that we think are going to be reliable, that they end, that they vanish, it begins to undermine this belief. begins to help us to let go. And this is a very, very deeply ingrained belief. It goes beyond simple sense pleasure. On one on one retreat, I had enough. I had enough understanding to recognize that, um, you know, look searching for happiness in something was not going to work. But at some very deep level in the mind, what I was, what I got to watch at one point was just the mind. Searching, searching, searching is like there must be some place for happiness to be found. Just this, it's like this, this restless, you know, surely somewhere, surely somewhere there's happiness to be found. And I, it's early on in this as I saw this pattern start to happen, it's like, you know, this is ridiculous. I know this is not going to do any good. And I would try to stop the searching and just come to some kind of more stability. But at some point it's like, wow, this is like some deep pattern that just wants to like, be convinced. <laughs> and so I just let it do it. I was very mindful. This is, this is the searching. 
trying to find something, trying to find something. And lo and behold, actually, the mind would find something. It would create a state of peace that felt really good. And it would be like, ah, that's nice. And then that state of peace would begin to disintegrate and there was an even more release that happened as the mind just saw that state disintegrate and there was nowhere to land. It was just disintegration. And there was a little bit of learning there. It's like, right, even that, even that peace isn't the place to land. And then the mind would do it again. And again, and again, and again, over and over and over again. It's like, well, maybe it was just that state of peace or something. I don't know what the mind was thinking, but it, it was just this very, very deep pattern that was asking to be seen. And so sometimes that's what we do with delusion. This, to me, this was watching delusion at work. Watching the mind searching for happiness, having some kind of feeling that surely there's some belief somewhere, some happiness somewhere. Understanding at an intellectual level that it wouldn't find it, but at this very deeply ingrained level, just watching it. So watching that delusion at work, just watching it. Each time the mind let go, there was a, a deep release, a very deep release. That was kind of a, I felt like was a little bit of kind of on the side of the mind going, right, okay, yep, nowhere to land. No, absolutely nowhere to land. So I don't have time to talk about seeing what is not self as self, but I know somebody else will talk about that. Exploring delusion, you know, non-delusion, is not something we can do. But as we explore delusion, as we get familiar with it, there are times when there's a, a kind of a state of of insight, of the mind like lets go of some confusion. And it sees, I mean, it sees, oh right, sense pleasure is not the way to go. Or it sees, yeah, aversion around this situation, that's not helpful. Or we see how thoughts are just thoughts. And it seems so obvious to us at some point. When we're, when we're in a state where the insight or the non-delusion is functioning, it often seems so obvious. Like, how can I not see this? When delusion falls away, there is so, such clarity about perhaps particular understandings. And yet, it is not obvious. <laughs> Minutes later, Maybe an hour later, the delusion comes back. And then we see, ah, it wasn't so obvious. How was it that I was seeing thoughts? How was it that it was possible not to think there was something out there? 
that would make me happy? It's like, huh, what? We're confused again. At that moment, we might disbelieve the insight or disbelieve that what we saw was real or true or really seen. But what that can do for us actually, and over time what we can begin to, to recognize or to see is that delusion falls away four times and it comes back. It falls away, it comes back. When it's fallen away, we see something really clearly. When it comes back, we can know it's delusion operating. At that point, we can know delusion is present in me. And we don't, we, we, we are often not able to just say, oh, let delusion go away and let me see things clearly again. But we can at least know delusion is present. Delusion is affecting the mind. Even that is incredibly powerful to know there's a belief here. This belief is affecting the mind. Again, it creates a little gap around that delusion so that we're not just taking that delusion, that delusional reality to be truth. And so delusion unwinds in a slow process. So patience, patience with this. But I hope that you get curious about your delusion as opposed to being combated with it or frustrated by it. We're all deluded. <laughs> it's the nature of our minds. <laughs> so I could even go so far to say as enjoy your delusion. Not in the deluded way, but in the curious way, being curious about it. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.